What's going on, everybody? And welcome in to this edition of Be Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. And tonight we're talking about a Cardinals win as they took down the Astros 4-2 in the first game of the new homestand. Getting back into the cozy confines of Bush Stadium following the long road trip, which was partially a homestand if you count the two home games in London. Some unique circumstances for the Cardinals, but they're back at home facing a pretty good team in the Houston Astros and playing a pretty complete game on Tuesday to be able to get back in the win column for a second consecutive game, thanks to some all-around good performances by pretty much every element of the roster. Not a ton of offense in this game as the Cardinals scored just four runs, but they had some timely hitting and they got just enough from that lineup to be able to put themselves in a good position to win. How about Jordan Montgomery after a, a rough beginning to the game? by giving up a run in the first inning, settles in thereafter and uh, gives the Cardinals a really good shot tonight, allowing just one earned run, two total runs, and pitching into the seventh inning. Then you had the bullpen contribute as well with Giovanni Gallegos getting the Cardinals out of a jam there in the seventh. And you had Jordan Hicks, who is this team's closer at this point, come on for his fifth save. That's five in a row for Jordan Hicks since he was installed into the new role. Uh, Yeah, he seems to be enjoying those new digs. So, We'll talk about everything Cardinals v. Astros from Tuesday night, as well as something else I want to spend some time on tonight. Article from Ken Rosenthal, who writes for The Athletic, national reporter, you know him well, kind of gave a helicopter view of where the Cardinals stand right now in the decision-making process on a path forward. His proposal for the Cardinals and the way they should proceed, given the struggles of this season and the tenuous position of the roster and John Mozeliak's tenure and how he wants to cement his legacy. A lot floating around for the Cardinals. Ken Rosenthal put out the uh, proposal, basically, that the Cardinals should either go one direction or another. Spend big to try and make a run at things and keep this core together and win a World Series out of it, which I know Cardinals fans would be in favor of, but be very aggressive in doing so, or they should completely rebuild and, and tear it down by selling off some of the key pieces. Guys like Goldschmidt and Arenado are floated in that Ken Rosenthal article. So I'll kind of recap what Ken Rosenthal had to say a little bit. You you want to read it yourself if you have an athletic subscription or even if you don't. uh, We won't give away everything that Ken put in there. But it's definitely something that is going to continue to be an interesting talking point, I think. And when you have a, a national writer of Ken Rosenthal's caliber breaking down the situation as he sees it for the Cardinals, it's definitely worth our time to explore some of his thoughts and see where maybe we agree or disagree. So we'll get into a little bit of that today. We'll also give some injury updates because this was the first game of a new homestand. So uh, lots of reports from down at Bush Stadium on who's healthy, who's getting there, who's maybe not quite to that point. And so we'll go through a little bit of the injury stuff as well tonight on B-Shape Daily. Appreciate you guys for being here. As always, want to invite you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. If you're watching or listening now on YouTube, would love you to give a like to this video and be sure to comment down below with your thoughts on the Cardinals, everything going on now, and the way you view the framework for this roster as we approach the trade deadline. YouTube.com slash at bschaefer12. If you want to type that into the URL, you'll find the channel there. And make sure to subscribe once again to the YouTube channel and make sure you're following Bschaefer Daily on Spotify on Apple Podcasts, rate and review with five stars over there, if you'd be so kind. Let's go ahead, though, and jump right into it. I think we'll start with the injury stuff. Get that out of the way a little bit, just in case you're looking for those updates. I want to make sure uh, to provide those, because a lot of people tell me, hey, I I live out of the country. I don't get to watch all the Cardinals games. Appreciate your podcast as a way to keep abreast of things. And so we'll try to give rundowns on some of the, the news tidbits as they come about when it's relevant. And basically, just a couple of guys I want to make sure we talk about tonight. Tyler O'Neill. According to those that were at the ballpark today, back to baseball activity, Jeff Jones of the Belleville News Democrat says he's running, swinging, throwing, doing everything, and he hopes to be heading out on a rehab assignment within the next week or so. So potentially good news for the Cardinals on Tyler O'Neill. Again, what do we expect of O'Neill when he gets back? I think is certainly a question. I feel a little bad for the guy because he wants to be out there as bad as the Cardinals wanted him to be out there, thriving, succeeding, similar to the way he performed during that 2021 season when he was a top 10 guy in the MVP voting for the National League. But the numbers just haven't been there for him this year. And then he has the kind of lingering back injury that nobody really knows what's going on. And he goes out and seeks a second opinion. And 
I don't know if that's a, a slight on the Cardinals medical staff. I know a lot of Cardinals fans over the years with the different injuries that have gone on, and it always seems like the trope is that if it's a pitcher, for instance, the guy says, oh, it's just a little strain, you know, it's a, and then they say, oh, Tommy John should be around the corner. And part of that is just like the nature of the way these injuries play out. You're always going to assume or or look for the possibility that it's a more minor thing until it proves otherwise. And so I think sometimes maybe the Cardinals medical staff unfairly gets targeted in the in the media and in the ways that these things are presented because, yeah, a lot of times that's just the nature of injuries. Something's going to seem less severe until it turns out that that's not the case and they just can't deal with rest rehab as a way to get a guy to recover properly. But with Tyler O'Neill, it's been a really winding road the way he's dealt with these back issues. And it, at first it seemed like it could be a very minor thing and it's kept him out for weeks and weeks and months at this point. Rehab assignment coming soon. If he can get back to form in terms of what he brings to the table offensively, the Cardinals certainly wouldn't say no to it, but he was a guy with about a 620 OPS earlier this season. I think still it's in a spot for Tyler O'Neill where if you're the Cardinals, you're viewing anything that he brings at this point the rest of 2023 as sort of a bonus. And I think it's good timing for him to be getting healthy at the beginning of July because I don't think it's impossible that he would potentially be involved as a trade chip even if he's performing well, I mean, the best case scenario for the Cardinals would be to get him back and performing well. And whether they can find room for him in the daily lineup, they have been kind of selective with uh, who they're willing to move around and, and mess with their playing time. Tommy Edmond has been the center fielder pretty much every day. And are they going to continue that once they add another former starter to the mix? I don't know that Tyler O'Neill is going to be a present day starter when he gets back in there. But the best news for the Cardinals would be him coming back playing well because then they would have the flexibility to say, hey, other MLB teams, this guy's healthy again. What do you think of maybe throwing us some pitching for him? Like the Cardinals could potentially go that route and still trade Tyler O'Neill. But first things first, he's got to be healthy and performing. And so he'll head out on a rehab assignment relatively soon, it sounds like, to see if he can't get back to that form that he has previously held. As for on the pitching side, Ryan Helsley has still not thrown yet. But according to Jeff Jones from earlier today, was seeing the doctor Tuesday and was hopeful at the time that he would get clearance to begin throwing. But at that point, it's still going to be two or three weeks of building back up before he can return to game action. And then game action doesn't mean MLB action. Some rehab assignments as well would be mixed in there. And so it could be a good solid month before we see Ryan Helsley. And you might still take the over on that. Again, if it's going to be two to three weeks of building up, once he's able to begin throwing, even if that starts immediately, you you may not see him in St. Louis until the beginning of August. So we'll see what that ends up looking like. But the good news for the Cardinals is on that front is that while he's been out, Jordan Hicks has stepped into the closer role and has been sensational. He did give up a run the other night, but it was a three-run lead, so the save was still no problem for the Cardinals. Uh, I believe that was game two in London where he gave up a, a run in the ninth inning, but the Cardinals still won that game 7-5. They win again on Tuesday by a two-run margin, and this time Jordan Hicks was perfect in his ninth inning of work. No hits, no walks with one strikeout as the ERA for him on the season down to 4.05. And if you recall, earlier this year, Jordan Hicks had a uh, heavily ballooned ERA that was uh, a couple of runs higher than that. So five saves and five attempts for Jordan Hicks over the last couple of weeks. As long as he continues to pitch with that confidence and with that swagger, the Cardinals are going to be in good shape, especially from bullpen perspective, that is, but especially if Giovanni Gallegos can continue some of the momentum that he is building back up at this point. It's not like he's had a bad year. 3.48 ERA. It's just been very hit and miss when it comes to Gio, and I think he's back into his stride the way the Cardinals would like to see him remain. An inning and a third, and again, I mentioned it off the top that he had a bases-loaded jam that he was able to get the Cardinals out of in the seventh inning after Jordan Montgomery gave the Cardinals six and two-thirds innings of two-run baseball, only one of those runs being an earned run. The Cardinals' defense kind of lets him down a little bit off the top. That's been a story of the way these recent games have gone for St. Louis. What they did to Matthew Libertor on Sunday was uh, was pretty brutal. But nevertheless, the Cardinals have been able to rack up a couple of wins now. They're eight games back in the NL Central as the Reds are back atop the division. It was the Brewers there for a moment. But then the Reds getting the win on Tuesday against the Orioles and the Brewers were unsuccessful in their game. So Brewers are right now a half game back. The Cardinals are eight games back, still in last place, but catching up to the Pirates who have struggled recently. Cardinals still three games back, though, of Pittsburgh. 
for the Cardinals, it was a pretty complete effort. I mentioned a little bit of the wonkiness defensively, but you also had uh, some generally solid defensive play outside of the error committed just the third of the year, though, for Brendan Donovan, so we won't hold that against him too much. But a nice night for the pitching staff to be able to overcome an error, be able to pitch deep into the game for the starter. You get into the seventh inning, you record a couple of outs there. Jordan Montgomery did give up a home run to Martin Maldonado, which that's not really a guy that you generally want to see taking you deep. But he's had some success against Monty previously in his career. I think the city's, uh, as of that home run, was three for three with two homers and a double in his career against the lefty Jordan Montgomery. So maybe just a nice matchup situation for the light-hitting Houston catcher. But how about Jordan Montgomery really settling back into form? And he looks basically like the guy the Cardinals got last year when they acquired him at the trade deadline. 2022, between the Yankees and the Cardinals, a 3.48 ERA for Jordan Montgomery last year. Right now, he's at 3.52 for the season, and we're at about that halfway point. Jordan Montgomery has racked up 92 innings. So you can expect him to basically, I think, be between 180, 190 innings for the course of a full season. He's going to be a three and a half ERA guy. That's pretty good. It's not ace-like, and the Cardinals really don't have anybody that is, but you feel good about Jordan Montgomery, I think, when he steps on the mound for St. Louis every fifth day right now. You feel like you've got a pretty decent chance to win a baseball game. 2.66 is the ERA for Montgomery over the course of his last seven starts now, and he's been pitching pretty consistently deep into those games. He's had a couple of mishaps here and there, but they've been few and far between, and I think he's just... Along with Miles Michaelis, those guys are, have gotten into a rhythm of reliability where the Cardinals just feel like, all right, if these guys are on the bump, you're at least going to be in the mi- in the mix to win that game. Every other spot in the rotation besides those two, I think, is still up in the air, and you're feeling some skepticism about those spots right now. Adam Wainwright, we've talked a lot about. It was he- heavily discussed in uh, the last episode of B-Shape Daily, if you want to scroll back on your Spotify timeline or, or, or check it out on YouTube as we uh, broke down the London series. Talked a lot about the Adam Wainwright stuff in that episode, but he has struggled. ERA of six and a half. It's no secret. Matthew Libertor is still trying to find the rhythm, and it's not that I've lost faith or that I, I would cease giving him these opportunities. I think the Cardinals have to stick with Libertor for the next few weeks, and then they can sort of decide from there, what do the standings look like? What are we doing with the other guys in the rotation that are on expiring contracts like Montgomery, like Jack Flaherty, who I think that's the other little key piece to this rotation right now. Had the hip issue over in London, didn't pitch in that series because of it. Now he has been cleared to return and and has been slotted in for the upcoming weekend, I believe, in the rotation as the Cardinals will take on the Yankees. I think he's going to be pitching one of those games. So uh, they're just giving him some extra time to breathe, but ultimately... Flaherty going to be in that rotation still. But I think Libertor will be as well. And like I was saying, I, it's not that I've lost faith that he's going to figure it out. It's just clear at this point that the Cardinals may be growing a little more skeptical of the idea that he can fill a spot here. And it could just be the isolated incident of they were playing in London. The offense was showing a little bit of life, which is rather unusual for the way they've performed this year when they get down by four or five runs early. Typically, the Cardinals go night-night offensively, and you don't see then put up much of a fight. They were putting up that fight, and so I think Ollie Marmol went with the aggressive hook on Sunday to try and give his team a chance to win. It ended up panning out, but the result was that you only saw two and a third from Matthew Libertor and 56 pitches. So the question there is how much faith do the Cardinals have in Libertor when he gets into some jams and gets into some troubled spots to be able to see those situations through? How often do you expect him to pull him in the third inning? Probably not very often. This might have been an isolated incident, as I said, but it doesn't portend well for, I think, the confidence that that he is establishing in his ability to hold down a rotation spot. ERA is in the mid-fives. I, I still say you got to give Libby more opportunities because, again, at a certain point, it's going to be sink or swim for him, and we have sort of mentioned the notion that over the years, the Cardinals have failed at developing these young pitchers with – a, a bit of consistency at this point. Like we haven't seen a lot of homegrown starting pitchers make their way into the Cardinals rotation and stay there for a good while. Jack Flaherty, really the last one you look at the rest of this rotation. Well, Wainwright's been around for a long time, but it's not like they get credit in the current iteration of the Cardinals for uh, developing him. That, you know, that happened 15, 18 years ago or whatever the case was. Montgomery, though, was acquired via trade. Miles Michaelis acquired via free agency from overseas, and then they end up liking him, and he sticks it out even longer than that. 
they had signed Steven Matz, and that didn't pan out. He's in the bullpen at this point, doing a little better out there, but not a member of the rotation the way that you expected. You just kind of can look up and down the Cardinals rotation and go, yeah, they didn't. It's not like this is a group of of starting pitchers that they drafted and they developed, and and then you got to see the payoff of that. It's been a while since the Cardinals have had a lot of success in that regard. And so did they draft Matthew Libertor? No, but we know they traded away Randy Rose Reina to get him. And it just has to be, for me, the phrase is sink or swim. When Randy Rose Reina was going off and doing all these things in the World Series and, and great things for the Tampa Bay Rays, it was kind of like, all right, not totally realistic to just get all bummed out if you're a Cardinals fan and say, oh, the trade was lost, you know, we, we got nothing in return. Because Matthew Libertor, when he was a first-round pick, it was straight out of high school, and so you got to give him some time to develop. But now it's several years down the road. He is to the to the age and to the development point in the process where we'd like to see it, right? And so if you're the Cardinals and you're knowing that you've got all these vacancies upcoming for the 2024 rotation, you basically just have to let Matthew Libertor try and see his way through some of this stuff so that you can have a better sample size, some more data points to know what you can reasonably expect from him in terms of uh, contributions for 2024. So that's why I give him some more time if it's me, but that's 20% of your rotation right there. Adam Wainwright's another 20%, and we know he has really struggled. Another 20% is the Flaherty situation that I mentioned, which, again, I think he's going to be slated to return to the rotation without having to um, skip another start or anything like that from the the little hip issue that he had after the flight to London. I think it must have just kind of locked up on him and, was more of a short-term thing. But that's 60% of the rotation between Libby, Wainwright, Flaherty that you've at least got some level of question about. The good news, though, as I mentioned in the beginning of this entire diatribe, Montgomery, Michaelis are two guys that you really can kind of rely upon, I think, right now if you're the Cardinals. And Montgomery showing that once again in the game on Tuesday. I don't think he's going to be around past this year. Scott Boer's client, I think he's going to get the most that he can get in free agency. Again, it's not to say that he doesn't like being a Cardinal. I'm sure he enjoys his teammates and enjoys being in that clubhouse, especially when they win. That's another part of this where you say, well, do certain guys like being here? I I think anybody's going to like being anywhere that they are if that team is winning more than they're going to like being in that place if that team is losing. So Montgomery has demonstrated himself as a guy that really cares about winning and wants to be competitive out there. But at the end of the day, I think he's setting himself up nicely to be able to cash in in free agency which could ultimately mean elsewhere. Now, if that ends up being the case, how do you handle that if you're the Cardinals? This kind of plays into the discussion of uh, the Ken Rosenthal article that we're going to weave into our conversation here on B-Shape Daily. Quick reminder, though, to subscribe to this channel on YouTube if you enjoy the Daily Cardinals content. We'll have it. We're having Daily Cardinals content throughout the remainder of the season. And I'm telling you what, last year on this podcast, around late July is when things got really, really Interesting. I know the Cardinals didn't ultimately get Juan Soto, but it was a lot of fun to be basically boots on the ground at that point in time, talking daily about everything going on with the rumors and the reports and the potential movers and shakers at the trade deadline. Those were some of the most fun episodes of the podcast that we've done. Make sure this time around, because I do think it could have the potential to be an explosive trade deadline once again, that you are subscribed on YouTube to Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. And then if you just like the audio versions and you don't want to do YouTube, that's fine as well. The podcast, Be Shaved Daily on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, really anywhere that you're going to find podcasts, you're going to find Be Shaved Daily. So make sure you guys are locked and loaded in those locations as well because I'm excited to get things kind of heating up. I know the Cardinals record might have to heat up before you can consider them to be buyers at the deadline. But again, even if they're not in the spot to buy, even if they're within striking distance and you don't know for sure that you're going to sell and tear everything down, which I I don't think is the ultimate answer is where I kind of quibble a little bit with Ken Rosenthal as I'll, as I'll discuss, but I think there are decisions to be made about the short-term guys, the guys who are on expiring contracts to me over the next month, other than whether or not the Cardinals can kind of claw their way back into a spot in the NL central standings where they reasonably could make a run. A lot of people say, "Ah, I, I wrote that off a long time ago. Others would say, no, I've still got interest in seeing whether they can at least make it competitive. Right now, they're the last place team, but they're only eight games back. At the other side of that coin, it's eight games back. They could win eight in a row, and if the the guys at the top, the Reds, the Brewers, continue to to play some good baseball, you may not pick up that much ground. So it is definitely a big mountain to climb right now for the St. Louis Cardinals in order to get back in this division. 
but there's still things that are interesting going on. When you have a Jordan Montgomery who's likely to be a free agent after the season, I mean, he's going to be, and I just don't personally expect the Cardinals to, to work out an extension successfully with him. Not that they wouldn't want to, and not that he wouldn't be fine with returning. But again, I just get the sense that Scott Boris, they're probably, I mean, Montgomery's going to have suitors. Left-hander, throws relatively hard, consistent performer over the last few years. I think he's going to get a nice multi-year contract. Cardinals will probably be in the bidding for that. But here's the other side of this coin. If he is an expiring contract like he is, do you trade him and maybe get something big for him at the deadline? If you're not looking like a playoff team, it's not to say that trading him would be giving up on the season. I think it's this notion of you've got to do some multiple things at once at times. You got to buy while you sell. You got to sell a little while you buy, but you have to do all of those things in the context that makes sense for where you're at as an organization. And while eight games out isn't necessarily as bad as it could be, look at the last place teams of other divisions that aren't involved in the laughing stock in El Central. It could certainly be a lot worse because of the nature of the division. The Cardinals are technically still in the mix, but how much faith do you have when in the mix happens as a 33 and 45 team? You're 12 games below 500. You've got to be weighing all of those things. And John Mosellock, before his head hits the pillow every night, I think is doing exactly that right now. But even if you don't want to have a full-scale rebuild, which I don't think the Cardinals would benefit from because the expectation should be to compete in 2024, it's going to get to a point where unless they really do make a run, I think you've got to sell the short-term guys, which is Montgomery, Jack Flaherty, and probably Jordan Hicks at this point. And I know that he likely is a guy that's helping you win a lot of games if he continues to pitch like this for another month. But just think of what a legit contender that has prospects and young MLU players potentially to offer would do if Jordan Hicks looks like a bonafide closer for a six-week period heading into the trade deadline. That guy ends up becoming more valuable to teams that are right in position, they think, to win a World Series, but, you know, they could just use one more reliable bullpen arm. And how many times throughout Jordan Hicks's career has he looked dominant, but then not, and it's not just him, but any reliever, but then the guy turns around and you go, oh yeah, he's kind of lost his touch for a little while. And then he, he's searching for it and then he finds it back and it's really great again. But that's the nature of relief pitching. And I think with the 103, 104 that Jordan Hicks brings comes a little bit of uncertainty in terms of command. It's easy, I think, for his command to be something that comes and goes because he's a momentum pitcher. You ride the wave when it's going well, but inevitably there are going to be times where guys search for it. And like, I don't want to paint Jordan Hicks as anything other than a really quality pitcher because he's been that for the Cardinals recently. But just realistically with any relief pitcher, this is kind of the nature of the beast. So if you can sell a relief pitcher high, especially a guy that's on an expiring contract where you can get something legit for him with the alternative being by mid August or September, he might be in another bit of a downturn anyway. So Holding on to him may not make the most sense if you're just desperate to cling to the notion that this is a playoff team. You could go multiple routes with it. I mean, the Cardinals in 2021 when Alex Reyes was an all-star closer, they didn't have anything in mind to trade him at the trade deadline, even though they were kind of on the periphery of the playoff conversation. They ultimately snuck in uh, with a wild card bid, and that was all fine and dandy. I, I guess that was the, uh, the 17 game winning streak in September that sort of led to that, right? But Cardinals probably, in retrospect, if they were honest with themselves and with the public, they would say, yeah, it would have been nice if we would have had the foresight at that time to trade Alex Reyes because he had a history of injuries and ended up getting injured again, didn't throw another pitch for the Cardinals after that that 2021 wild card game when uh, Chris Taylor, I believe it was, hit the home run to send the Dodgers on. That was just the way it was, and he had a really good season for the Cardinals, but it's relief pitching, man, so... My point with that is Jordan Hicks is not necessarily immune to this. If the Cardinals are five, six games back in late July, that's within striking distance. But man, if the market for Jordan Hicks is heavy, I think you trade him. I think you trade him as a business decision. You sell while you buy, you buy while you sell. Trading away a Jordan Hicks and a Montgomery and a Flaherty, even if he's, you know, if he ends up having a nice July, there's going to be a market for him. I think people know what the upside is. Yes, all of them are on expiring contracts, so don't get too carried away with what you think the Cardinals could net in return. But for guys that are trending up, I do think you have to maybe capitalize on that if you're the Cardinals, unless you're literally you know, r r wrapping off a 12-game winning streak that gets you right back into the very top of this division. 
and then suddenly the expectation shifts back to prioritize above all adding to the immediate team, even if it is for guys on short-term deals because we have an expectation to make the playoffs and do something there. I don't think the Cardinals are going to get to that point, but that's kind of all of the possibilities that John Mozeliak and company have to be weighing right now. But what I think is interesting about a Montgomery even more so than a Hicks is the possibility of a qualifying offer. Like, you can give Jordan Hicks a qualifying offer, but he's going to take it. It's going to be like $20 million. That's not something that I think the Cardinals are ultimately going to do because relief pitchers just don't make that kind of money to where, you, I mean, you're not going to pay a reliever $20 million. You're just not going to do it. He could be the best reliever in baseball, and I, I still would say, eh, probably not a good idea, right? Jordan Montgomery, however, you offer him a $20 million qualifying offer, I don't think he takes it. Personally, I would be surprised to to see that he would, especially if he ends with that kind of three and a half ERA and gives you 190 innings. People are going to give him a four or five year contract, at least, I, I would think, with those numbers when he gets to free agency. So you pick up a draft pick. That's the point. Unless the prospect is better than the draft pick that you would project to land in the late first or whatever the compensation round ends up being. Maybe you hang on to the guy. Like, you have to be able to to weigh those options and, and figure that out. The Cubs had a great example of this when they offered Wilson Contreras the QO, didn't make any effort to extend him or, or agree to a long free agent contract with him after he declined the qualifying offer. And they basically said, this is great. We're getting a pick no matter where he goes. No, we don't want him back, but we're getting a draft pick. Then the Cardinals end up being the team that gets him, and so the, the Cubs are actually going to get uh, a draft pick from the Cardinals as compensation for that signing. Jordan Montgomery, Cardinals have got to figure out what it's worth to them, what the market's going to be via trade. I think he can pitch his way into as one of the, again, we don't really know all of the names are going to be available at the trade deadline from a pitching perspective, but of the rental pitchers not named Shohei Otani, right, of the rental pitchers who don't also have 30 home runs this year as a hitter, I feel like, Jordan Montgomery could be toward the top of that list. And if it ends up being a, a seller's market where you've got a few teams desperate to add that type of pitcher to their rotation, maybe some more pitching injuries happen in mid-July and the Cardinals can pounce on that. I do think you have to consider these things all while still trying to contend and compete because I don't think you can just throw in the towel on the season, but you gotta you got to meet them where you live, right? The Cardinals right now live in last place in this division and – they haven't been able to consistently develop young pitching to where the the reserves of guys on the cusp of joining this rotation, it's still a little shaky. You've got a lot of interesting guys with promise, but none of them, I think, are bonafide to where you can say with confidence, by 2024, when 60% of this rotation leaves in free agency, we've got the, we've got the next guys on the way. As the Cardinals, I don't think that they can really say that right now with certainty that by opening day next year, Michael McGreevy is ready to join the rotation in the big leagues or that Gordon Graceffo is ready to join the big league rotation. That's why it's important to me to see what Libertor can do, because if he's good enough for this rotation, then you can probably pencil him in for next year as well. But if he's not, then what do you expect to change over the offseason to where if you're relying on him as your number three or four starter going into 2024 and he proved this year that it wasn't it, you, you've got more open spots to fill, I think. Mentally, you've got to know that more work needs to be done in the offseason if Libertor doesn't look like a guy that can slide right into a spot with confidence. But the others in the minors, like Zach Thompson, they are, are converting back into a starter, but it hasn't gone great. I don't think you have a lot of expectations for what Dakota Hudson would be next year after kind of a topsy-turvy this this season where he just hasn't done a whole lot in AAA to, to give you a ton of confidence. Andre Palante probably won't have thrown enough innings this year to be considered for a full-time role next year, although I like the stuff and would like to see him go into spring next year to compete for a starting role. It, they, they just don't have any bona fides that they feel great about. And so you got to restock the system with as many lottery tickets or possible upside arms as you can. And if you're trading legit pitchers, which Montgomery is appearing to be one, Jack Flaherty could certainly, it just takes a couple of starts to shift the narrative and go, all right, Jack is back in some playoff team with the playoff experience that he has uh, shutting down the Padres in 2020, even in a losing effort showed in the big stage, what he's capable of doing. 
teams would be interested in that if he ends up trending in the right direction. Um, the qualifying offer may be more interesting with Jack Flaherty. I would still be surprised for him to take it, but if he had a rough finish to 2023 and wanted maybe like a pillow deal to say, all right, 20 mil just to it'd be way more than he made this year. I think he's only making like five or six million was surprised almost at that amount, even though it's a guy that has dealt with injuries and hasn't been able to consistently raise his rank in terms of the arbitration ladder. I was a little surprised that he settled for uh, the, the number that he did. So maybe 20 million is like, all right, that's a big step up in pay. And I can, I can give one more shot at this and take my bite at the apple one year down the road. Maybe Flaherty would accept it, but I think Montgomery you weigh that a little bit differently with him because it feels like he's standing on more solid ground in terms of the way he would approach a free agency situation based on what his numbers are and the consistency. He's had pretty good health and durability and things like that. So all factors I think the Cardinals have got to be looking at, but that'll kind of parlay us into the uh, the Rosenthal article. We didn't talk a lot about the offense tonight. They, they scored four runs. They had eight hits. Uh, Paul DeYoung hitting a home run. I guess I'll kind of wipe the slate clean a little bit quickly when it comes to the offensive performance. Uh, like I said, Paul DeYoung with his 12th home run of the season, he is maybe the best mistake pitch hitter in Major League Baseball. Anytime somebody leaves a breaky ball or something fat over the middle of the plate or the inner half of the plate and just hang in there, he is going to pummel it. That has been true of Paul DeYoung over the course of his career historically. He's had a little bit of a revival this year with a uh, not a really higher batting average, but showing that consistent power to where the OPS is at 764. You take that. With solid shortstop defense, you take that. I know the strikeouts are high. They're going to continue to be high. In some cases, it seems like it's all empty calories on some of these DeYoung home runs. Hasn't really hit a ton of doubles either, right? It's just been those those home runs that sometimes don't feel all that valuable. Like you hit one last week in a 9-2 game that you go, all right, it counts for the the stats, but how much did he really help you win a ball game today by hitting that meaningless home run late in the game? This one, though, for DeYoung was, I think, more important because it came early. It came to get the Cardinals on the board in the first place after they were already trailing. So another come-from-behind win for the Cardinals today as they score runs in three different innings, third, fourth, and fifth in this game. The Cardinals were able to take advantage of a wild pitch ultimately to get a little insurance there as well. Uh, Jordan Walker extending the hitting streak to 16 games with an infield single that he had on a play that Contreras ended up. He was on second base, and once the ball gets thrown over the across the diamond to try and get Walker at first, Contreras takes off for third, and he shouldn't have. Uh, but still credited with the hit was Jordan Walker. Cardinals had a couple of toot plans thrown out on the bases like an incompoop. Yeah, that happened a couple of times today for the Cardinals. They're able to overcome it. All's well that ends well is the way we phrased it on Sunday after a weird start to that game. I think it's applicable on Tuesday as well. Not a ton of offense. You're going to want to cash in more than just four runs when you get eight hits and when you get four walks. But two for seven with runners in scoring position. They leave seven on base. They could be better. They hit into a couple of double plays. That's rather typical. But all in all, an okay offensive night. And again, finding the cohesion with the pitching staff, combining with what the hitting is able to give you on a given night, making sure that the base running or the defense, if you have any deficiencies there, which the Cardinals kind of did have in, in both areas today at times, but making sure those things don't tank you, that those aren't things you can't overcome. So the Cardinals had the cohesion again today in a 4-2 to win to be able to get done what they needed to get done against a tough pitcher in Framber Valdez, who's got a 2-4-9 ERA for the season, one of the Astros' best and really one of the best in the league. You remember what he did in last year's World Series, did a nice job. Cardinals able to get four earned runs against him, able to get all eight of their hits against him in six innings. Nice job by the Cardinals' offense all in all today. When it, sometimes you do have to tip your cap to a pitcher and say, yeah, this isn't really a day that we're expecting to see the offense absolutely unload. And so to be able to get four runs off the starter is something to uh, to be, I think, pretty excited about. Didn't get anything off of the, the relief pitchers that came in for Houston thereafter, but that was only two innings worth. They didn't have to bat in the ninth. So all in all, I'm if I'm a Cardinals fan, I'd say, yeah, you're pretty satisfied with the way things went today offensively. Just the notion that you get an early deficit against a good pitcher and you give no quarter. You don't give in to a 2 nothing deficit and say, well, it's Framber Valdez. We know he's pretty good, so that's just maybe going to be the end of our day. Nope, they were able to score in the third, score in the fourth, and then a couple runs in the fifth to make sure they got that lead, and they, they kept it there, and that's a credit to the pitching staff and the bullpen and everybody that was involved with that. But that's basically all I have to say about the specifics of Tuesday's game. 
wanted to allow that to parlay a little bit into the conversation stemming from Ken Rosenthal's article in The Athletic. Because we've talked already about the way the Cardinals maybe approach this trade deadline, thinking that you got to maybe sell some of these pitchers if they have value. Don't just sell them just to say you you recognize the the chance to make a good business decision. Don't just do it if you're not going to get good prospects in return or if you don't estimate that those prospects are going to be head and shoulders ahead of the value you'd get by, well, keeping those pitchers to try and play good baseball the rest of the season in 2023, plus the potential draft pick you would get if you estimate qualifying offer, declined, guy ends up signing elsewhere and you get a pick. You have to have all of those things factored in. But Ken Rosenthal took it even a step further in the way that he described it in his recent article for The Athletic. Talking everything Cardinals, the title says, enough caution, Cardinals need to consider bold action at trade deadline. To which I would say, if I were just reading the headline, thank you for saying that, because I have been saying it. Bold needs to be the name of the game for the Cardinals at the deadline. I said bold needed to be the way they approached this past offseason, though. And I they were anything but bold, if we can be honest about the way they handled the winter. It was not bold to sign Wilson Contreras to a, a contract and give him a bag of money. They knew they had a needed catcher. Bold would have been, all right, the world thinks we're going to take a catcher, but what we're really going to do is identify a solid veteran that can split time with Andrew Kisner because we think there are better ways to invest this money. I'm not saying one would have been correct over the other. We've still got you know, four and a half years for the Contreras deal to play out. But I would just make the case that there was nothing bold about the notion that the Cardinals would want to sign him as the marquee free agent catcher. They lost Yadier Molina. They basically crudely put two and two together and said, I don't know, it'll probably work. And in, in some ways it it, it could. Uh, I wouldn't say it has so far because within five weeks they had to make the bold decision uh, to uh, take him out from behind the plate. And he's been back in there for weeks and weeks now and Things seem to be going well, but like that was a PR nightmare and he hasn't hit. He's hitting 217 with a 677 OPS. The OPS though is climbing, had a double today, had the four hit game in London, doing some good things. And so hopefully by the end of the season, you see that standard 760, 770 OPS with more of like a 240, 250 batting average, the the walks that he needs, the the power numbers that he needs to be kind of the middle order bat that the Cardinals seem intent upon treating him to be, right? He's cleanup, batting fourth in the lineup today, which I liked against the lefty, having Goldsmith and Arenado back-to-back in the lineup. Will they start to do that when a righty is on the mound? I don't know. Newbar was not even in the starting lineup today, which is kind of a rarity. He's been a pretty consistent everyday guy. If he's not in the lineup against lefties, which I agree with not having him over Edmund, Walker, Carlson in that outfield, and if you're going to DH Contreras because you want Kisner's bat in the lineup, and Kisner had a hit today, so that's fine. But if you're going to make those decisions, there's just no room for Newt Bar. But if there starts being no room for Newt Bar, it's like, well, the Cardinals were very insistent on not trading him in the offseason, and I said they shouldn't. I've been very much in Newt Bar's corner. I don't think he's a number three hitter. I, righty, lefty, doesn't matter. I would bunch Goldsmith and Arenado up together. Arenado had a nice day with a, a two for three, took a walk. I believe he ended up scoring on the wild pitch. They said he was out initially, but upon review, it was clear that the Framber Valdez just missed the tag on him. Astros made that play close, but Arenado had a nice day. I don't think you need to split Goldsmith and Arenado up. There's no need to force that necessarily. I liked it when they had Gorman batting third when he was hitting well. And it made sense to do it against righties. I don't think you need to, though. Goldsmith and Arnado are going to do well against righties, and they're going to do well against lefties. It's going to be like if this Cardinals team is going to be what it needs to be, those guys are just going to hit well against pitching. It doesn't matter the handedness. So bunch them together, have them bat two and three or three and four. It doesn't really make any difference to me. I would bat Jordan Walker second and have Goldie third, Arnado fourth. And I would say, platoon be damned when it comes to the middle of your lineup. Like, let your best hitters be your best hitters and leave them where they are. Uh, and then Contreras can, you know, I would personally have Contreras batting sixth. I would get a lefty bat in that five spot. If you wanted to be Newt Bar, that's fine. You could have it be Gorman, I think, would be more applicable. Newt Bar's been kind of struggling a little bit. OPS down to 746. Came in today for Walker as a defensive replacement, so I don't even know if he took an at-bat. Um, 
but the numbers offensively for him have been down a little bit over the past couple of weeks. Last seven games, 211, 238 OBP, and a uh, 263 slug, so he's not really hitting for much power either. So I would be fine with moving Newt Bar down in the lineup a little bit. He's still a guy I believe in, but that's kind of my little little take on the lineup situation for the Cardinals. But all that discussion is is another tangent to take me away from the topic I want to address, which is the bold action that the Cardinals didn't really take in the offseason. They signed Contreras. They did nothing else at all when I, it was clear that they had log jams on the roster. And I guess maybe they didn't feel they were getting fair value in the offers for some of these players. Or it's just the notion that, like, Gorman, good player. Don't want to trade him. Donovan, good player. Don't want to trade him. New Park, you could go down the list and say that about a lot of the guys. And then the other list is, like, Yepes. Not a guy you can play anywhere defensively. Maybe teams would like the upside of the bat, but they've got enough questions that they're not offering you marquee players for a package that involves Juan Yepes and same thing with Alec Burleson and same things with they Tyler O'Neill. I don't think had a lot of trade value in the off season. I think the Cardinals would have been happy to unload him. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, it feels easier to say with the way his season has gone. But yeah, I think with a guy like him that had only two years of team control attached coming into the year compared to like a Dylan Carlson, I, I think the Cardinals would have preferred to probably part with O'Neill. I could be wrong about that though. My thought is there were log jams in the outfield and the middle infield in the back end of a starting rotation. I would argue still there was a log jam, but maybe it was just that they truly could not get anything for Dakota Hudson or Jake Woodford or whomever. And we didn't know yet that Steven Matz was going to be as, as big of a, a letdown in the rotation as he's turned out to be. So like Moselec just felt like his hands were tied in every area of the roster. When it came to the outfielders, the guys he wanted to trade, Probably didn't have value. The guys he didn't want to trade, he didn't want to trade them. Even if he, those guys like Newt Barb did have value to other teams. Same thing on the middle infield. Probably didn't want to trade Donovan. Can't blame him. Probably didn't think about trading Edmund. But like DeYoung, you weren't going to be able to get anything for him. So it was just, it was hard, I think, for them to make those moves. Granted, at the end of the day, the job of the executive is to make the moves that can better the team. And so finding avenues to trades, even if, when they happen, you might get a negative reaction. You've got to have trust that, hey, the moves we're making, don't let us feel gun-shy because of the things that have happened in the past. We've got to make the moves that can propel us forward. And I felt like the Cardinals did not take any bold action when it came to that in the offseason. Now we're approaching another trade deadline where the opportunity is there. You've had some of these same guys perform well for your team. A lot of these young position players, you've got to sort out the ones you're going to build around and the ones that you're going to build your roster by unfortunately jettisoning those players by trading them away. Not because they're not good players, but because you've got to use the surplus on your roster to address the deficiencies on your roster. They've got to shake this thing up a little bit. I think you could leave the Cardinals exactly as they are, and they probably would scrape out a 500 season. I'm still that big of a, you can call it a homer. I would just say I'm optimistic that there's talent on this team to be able to get from 33 and 45 at 12 games under to, yeah, they can win 81 games. Now, that's just, that's not going to get you in the playoffs. 82, 83 won't probably get you in the playoffs. I think it's going to take around 85 at this point with the way things are going. 84, 85. Do I think the Cardinals can get to 80 wins? I do. Do I think that's enough? No. And I, I'm skeptical that they can get to 85. You might say, well, it's only a five-game difference if you're so certain they can get rid of that 12-game deficit between the 500 record and, and where they'll ultimately be, why not throw a few extra games on there and say they're a playoff team? I think the calendar is dictating that they may run out of time for that, and so we'll kind of see. But I do think this team can continue to turn things around if you basically left them alone, uh, didn't add aggressively at the deadline as though 2023 was the last year on earth and you had to try to make the playoffs, but also you're not going to sell off these uh, expiring contracts the way that I honestly think they, they should do, almost regardless of the way July goes as long as those guys continue building value and don't completely tank it and, and have no value at all to other teams at the deadline. If those pitchers, Montgomery, Flaherty, and Hicks are valuable, you cash in on that value, in my opinion. But that's different than what Ken Rosenthal is arguing. He's saying, take bold action, splurge in free agency, or tear it down. That's the opening line of the article by Ken Rosenthal. But I do disagree with some aspects of this, and he really does take... A helicopter view is what I called it because he looks at all the, he talks about every free agent signing and it goes back to Matt Holiday and I, 
there's a lot in this in terms of like background information that a lot of Cardinals fans may already be familiar with, but I think Ken did a great job of just kind of presenting it for what it was. But one of the takeaways, when you look at all this, is that Cardinals don't ever spend huge in free agency, and so they're going to miss out on the guys like an Otani this coming off season. They're not going to get a Julio Urias from the Dodgers, who's up for free agency. And he even says they're probably not going to get another starter like a Aaron Nola or Eduardo Rodriguez, even a Marcus Stroman. They'll probably be looking in the next bucket at guys like, well, Montgomery and Flaherty, he goes on to say. So if the Cardinals aren't winning, willing to spend beyond the level of pitcher that they've already kind of found themselves reliant upon, is it the case that they're probably not going to improve their standing in terms of the quality of the rotation? That's maybe the supposition here, but I also don't think I agree with it. I think you could have looked this past offseason – and found that Michael Walker was going to be a value. You had to identify that and know it, which if anybody could have been able to do that, you'd think it would have been the Cardinals because they've had him for a long time. They drafted him. But nobody really knew Michael Walker was going to turn in this really solid season that he has so far. Nathan Avaldi is another guy. The Rangers picked him up. Granted, they spent 34 mil over two years on him, so that's a little more than you're spending on a 10 million Jordan Montgomery or an $11 million per year the previous offseason for Steven Matz. But... It's kind of like close enough to where the Cardinals just seem to continue to make these wrong decisions when it comes to free agency. Like if they hadn't gone in and committed to Steven Matz, maybe they would have been in the market for an Evaldi type in this past offseason, and it would have worked out a lot better. At a certain point, yes, spending more money is always going to be better, and the Cardinals, as Ken Rosenthal points out, rank only 15th in payroll, according to COTS, baseball contracts website that, that tracks a lot of that stuff for payroll. It's a, a franchise record, $176 million, but it ranks 15th in MLB. You've got to kind of keep with the times. You can't say, well, it's a we, we raised the payroll. Technically, we raised the payroll. I mean, you can. Cardinals fans just don't care. They don't buy it because you talked like when you say, hey, we're going to raise the payroll, you only make a comment like that. I think if you're playing the PR side of it as John Mosellock, you only make that comment if you want to give some fans optimism to be able to say, all right, Let's support these guys. Let's feel good about this team in the offseason because they're going to uh, reward that by by doing some spending and trying to put the best team on the field that they possibly can. But then they, like, barely raised payroll and not really threw anything other than just the Wilson Contreras signing and, like, the arbitration raises that they were going to make anyway. Like, they weren't going to cut any of these players that, that got raises in ARB. So it, it was kind of a misnomer. Technically correct. It's the best kind of correct, right? John Mozeliak can say it when a warm-up. Did the payroll go up? Yes, we said it would. Okay, so where's the lie? There was no lie. And he can be kind of defensive about it the way that he was, and he'd be, again, technically correct about that. But the spirit of it was, eh, 15th is your ranking in terms of payroll, opening day payroll, even though it's a franchise record, $176 million, uh, per the, the COTS baseball contracts figure that Rosenthal cites here in his article. Like, it's just not that compelling to where like really your middle of the pack was that thumping your chest and say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to have the payroll go up. Mo, I think saw it as he was asked a question and said, yeah, the payroll is going to go up because I can do the math in my head and know, yeah, it's going to be a little higher, but that gets taken the way it's taken. And it ends up just being kind of another PR hit that this front office has to take and has to deal with because fans, I think realistically are kind of over the fact that this team uh, coming into this year, even didn't have the recent playoff success. That was the whole thing coming into the year was, hey, it's great. You're winning division again, and you're, you're making October, and that's awesome. But when are you going to make that next step? That was the whole conversation surrounding this team coming into the year, and now it's completely different because they're in last place. So it's almost like you, you've – I, I keep using the phrase, you got to meet them where they live. You can't just say – beat down the table every day and say, I can't believe this Cardinals team can't win when they get to the playoffs because you're – living under a rock if you think this team's making it to the playoffs without some sort of substantive change to the way things are going this year. So forget winning in October. you got to get there first, and they've kind of knocked themselves down a peg by the way that they've performed. But I thought it was interesting in the article as Rosenthal's talking about the payroll and all these things, uh, he talks about Mosellock getting some credit for not ever signing those big, massive deals to guys that – get hurt or don't perform and then hamstring an organization and can really turn you into a, a franchise that has to embark upon a rebuild. Cardinals have never had to do that under Mosellock and the Cardinals deserve credit. Now, some of it has happened via complete blind luck. 
they tried to sign David Price to a large contract. The Red Sox swooped in and over overpaid, and it was a disaster for them. And they ultimately unloaded that deal to the Dodgers and had to, you know, get rid of Mookie Betts in the process just to get rid of that money, right? Like that was the trade that sent Price from Boston to LA. And the Cardinals were fortunate that they didn't sign it. Same thing with John Carlos Stanton, and this was mentioned by Ken as well. The fact that he refused to be traded to the Cardinals saved the Cardinals in terms of uh, his just consistent injury issues that he has. They're not paying him that massive contract, and so they've they've gotten kind of fortunate with that. The big contracts they do have, it's mostly just Arenado at this point, and even though he looks like he's kind of declining a little bit this year, I, th- I still think he's young enough that it could be an aberration. Ken talks about emotional player in Nolan Arenado, and so maybe just the losing is getting to him a little bit. But if the Cardinals start winning, I think Arenado just snaps back into exactly the guy that you expect him to be. And I think he can still become that. But the argument being made by Ken Rosenthal is that, look, if this Cardinals team can't figure out this pitching thing and they're not willing to spend to the degree of getting a a stud that's a bonafide on the free agent market to fix this rotation, maybe you go the other way if they were willing to tear it down a little bit. Right, They didn't make the moves for, and he cites Pablo Lopez or Sean Murphy, if they had traded some young talent in the offseason to get those guys, maybe it looks a little different right now. Granted, you can't ignore that that young talent might have included Gorman or Donovan or Newport, guys contributing to the lineup. So it, it, it doesn't all happen in a vacuum, but it's interesting to think about. And then he makes the case that because they have not really been able to figure this thing out in terms of the rotation, and they're obviously a losing team right now. What if you trade Goldsmith, get some prospects, maybe get some pitching that you can bring in, and then if you trade Goldsmith, well, you might as well trade Arnado. Like that was the the leap that was taken. It's like, well, if they're losing, maybe they trade Goldie. Arnado might say, yeah, this isn't a place that I'm going to be able to win, so I'll be able to move. Uh, they could be able to move him, and he would waive his no trade clause potentially if if that happened, just like he did with um, the Rockies. I don't think that. By the way, Nolan Arnado. He's got a lot of money left on that deal. If he's playing like he is this year, sub 800 OPS, not looking like a gold glover defensively all the time, a little inconsistent, still a great player. And I think, again, we'll rebound into form of, of what we expect to see from him. But I think other teams, if you're talking about trading a gold spit and then saying, well, might as well unload Arenado too. The only reason you would do that is to shed his salary. Like, I do not think the Cardinals are getting some massive prospect package for Arenado because teams are going to come in and say, well, he's not really playing that well. So you'd be saddling us with this money. We're not going to give you top prospects and take on the money. Like, I'm not saying that it's an albatross of a contract at this point. I still think it pans out if the Cardinals just stay true to the course and keep him. But teams are going to try to paint it that way. If they know that the Cardinals are in rebuild mode, you lose the leverage. And John Moselock doesn't always win trades when it when it's known widely that he doesn't have leverage. When he has it, getting Goldsmith, getting Arenado, he he wipes the slate clean. He I mean, he completely cleans up on these teams. But when he doesn't have the leverage, it doesn't tend to work out as well. And so when Rosenthal says the Cardinals wouldn't necessarily have to target just prospects in these trades, they go after major leaguers that could allow them to retool quickly. He pointed to the 2018 deadline when they moved Tommy Pham, Luke Voigt, picked up Gio Gallegos, Cabrera. I don't think it's a, a like for like, but it is a situation where in 2018 they were not super competitive at the deadline looking like a team that would make the playoffs, and ultimately they did not make the playoffs. But Rosenthal points to the fact that you can make those trades if you're giving up Goldie and Arenado for some young talent on the cusp, some young major leaguers, some prospects, retool rather quickly, and maybe not have to go through a long rebuild. The problem to me is your young players, the guys like Gorman and Walker and Edmund and Donovan and all these guys that are pretty cheap right now, none of them really on the pitching side. It's all on the position player side. You have to trade price some of those guys in general to maybe get the pitching if you don't trade the Goldies and Arenado. So that may be part of this as well. You want to just keep your overall average age younger. I get that aspect. But generally, the guys that you keep that are going to be your core offensively, if you trade away your two-star players, they're going to get paid soon as as well. Like they're entering arbitration. That process will be ongoing. And you don't have the leverage of, of having a bunch of young, cheap talent for as long as you think you have it. It's a benefit to have those guys while you're paying some of your big studs that are they're going to decline in age, but that's the way you can kind of team build and have all of these things kind of working in synergy at once. They just don't have it right now on the pitching side, and they're not getting value from the pitching side, and so they have to figure out a way to find that. 
And sure, trading away uh, the reigning MVP, who's got another year on his contract after this one, could probably get you that. But it also makes you worse for 2024. It just does. I don't think you are the competitive team that you think you are in 2024 without Goldsmith and Arenado. Rosenthal cites the Cardinals' core at that point without those two as Jordan Walker, Nolan Gorman, Lars Newpart, Brendan Donovan, and then as Mason Wynn, Gersefo, Tink Henson, McGreevy on the way. I don't think any three of those pitchers are necessarily going to be bonafides in the rotation next year. Gersefo, Henson, McGreevy. Hence, they've brought along super slowly. It's it's about time to get it going with him, by the way. Like, just get it going and see, see what he can be. I know he was like a skinny high school kid when you drafted him. But he's had several years in the organization now, and it's time to begin progressing him to see what he can do. I I think that is, is the way I feel about it. Graceffo McGreevy, I'm high on both of those guys and their potential, but to just expect that they're going to waltz into the 2024 rotation, I, I don't know if it's realistic. Mason Wynn, I think, will be part of that team next year. But like Walker, Gorman, Newpar, Donovan, nice players. I don't think if that's your full core, I don't know that you're just going to immediately be competing in 2024. I mean, Newpar and Donovan are sub-750 OPS right now. Nolan Gorman is sub-800, and Jordan Walker's a stud. But, like, that's those are really good complementary pieces. You've got to have the anchors. And Goldie and Arenado, not only in the clubhouse, but on the field and in the lineup, are the anchors. And the other part of this is, all right, this is great. They still like the farm system, but every NL Central team has a good farm system. Keith Law has all five in his top 13, according to Rosenthal here in this article. So keeping up with the Joneses is going to be a difficult task when it comes to just being able to outdraft, outdevelop these other teams because they're all kind of catching up to the Cardinals. The Cardinals have had the edge in this regard for many, many years, but I think that the playing field is getting more and more level, especially when you look on the pitching side and the Cardinals just have not had the results in recent years. That's something to kind of consider as well. And so the pitching side is where this all boils down to. And I think Ken did a good job of trying to lay out exactly the way we have described this conversation on B-Shape Daily. And again, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube, youtube.com slash at B-Shaper12. If you enjoy daily Cardinals content, this is the place to be. Hit that subscribe button, like this video, and comment below with the way you want to see the Cardinals approach this period coming up where it's a trade deadline and then a very important winter to follow to make sure that they can set this organization back up for long-term success. But Rosenthal mentioned the Evaldi and the Waka deals bang for the buck compared to expensive guys like DeGrom and Carlos Rodon from this offseason. Both guys have been hurt. But the Cardinals, as we mentioned, Steven Matz was kind of the way that they pushed their chips into the center of the table last offseason, and he's a reliever for them now, and so they're not getting value out of that. But just as Rosenthal commended the Cardinals for not getting saddled with any of those bad long-term contracts like a David Price like a Giancarlo Stanton on the, on the hitting side. He also says that when you when you shop in the second tier, even though you mitigate risk, you also potentially lose the potential to gain the quality arm that you're looking for. Other than the Evaldi and the Wakas, like you got to be able to find and identify those correct, less expensive pitchers, which still, Evaldi got $17 million per, but it was a shorter contract. You've got to be able to identify in that second bucket, in that middle tier of price, in the... Steven Matt's tier of price, the correct guys to go in on. And the Cardinals simply have not been able to do that. And so the line from Rosenthal, and he mentions Mike Leake, Brett C. So like I said, like he did a great job of going back into the archives of all the moves the Cardinals have made. And he summed up with this sentence, and I think it's a good one. If a team won't spend at the top of the market in terms of expensive guys and repeatedly whiffs on lower price choices, then how can it bank on free agency as an answer? That, I think, is exactly the reason that you don't trade Goldsmith and Arenado because he mentions, in the, again, the prospects are the reason that you do it. Goldie would fetch some good prospects. Rosenthal seems even pretty sure that Arenado would bring a quality return. He said it wouldn't be a salary dump. He would bring a quality return, which I'm not fully convinced on, as I said. like he'll, You'd get some good players, but I can't fathom that he would have, and I guess the contract is not as prohibitive as it was when the Rockies traded him, but everybody knew that the Cardinals were getting a great deal when the Rockies traded him to St. Louis. And the Rockies just didn't, I mean, Austin Gomber, I'm not trying to make fun of any of these players, but we know that the Cardinals kind of took them for a ride. They didn't have to give up any of their top prospects in that deal. 
I'm not saying it would be the same return, but given that Arenado's performance has declined a little bit, he's a little older, I know it's less money that you'd owe him, but I just can't imagine it's going to be a ridiculously better in terms of prospects that you would get back if you traded Arenado now a few years later than when the Rockets... And, and Rosenthal, by the way, doesn't say do it at the deadline, but do it this offseason when there's more time. You trade Goldie now, you wait till the winter for Arenado. I'd be doing neither of those things, but that's kind of the way he laid it out. And here's the other reason why. I mentioned that line about free agency. Cardinals haven't been willing to spend the most in free agency, and the lower-priced options that they've gone after have simply not panned out. Brett Cecil, Dexter Fowler was was so-so. Not off to a great start with Contreras. We could go on and on and on. They've it, Steven Matz is another huge glaring example. They just have not historically been able to to identify, unless it's like a niche situation, like Miles Michaelis from overseas was a great pickup, and then they extended him once they realized he was the real deal, and it was a great fit. Like, those are the kinds of moves that they do well with. They should be making more of those moves. Like, Drew Verhagen was another type of that move. Did it really pan out? Eh, not really. But it was such a small dollar amount that it just doesn't, they need to be doing more of those, and if you waste five million here and there, who cares? It's not. It's nothing. But it's a less prohibitive choice than wasting eighty million on a pitcher or forty-four million on a Steven Matz that could have. I'm not saying the same amount of chance to to go bankrupt on you, but like Miles Michaelis, when the Cardinals got him, was such a lower risk because the money was so much less. His performance has been much better than Matt's. I know that's like just pointing at one example that went really well and exceeded expectations when the other has fallen well short, but that happens enough. Like this pitching thing, this free agent signing when it comes to starting pitchers, it's a crapshoot a lot of times. Carlos Rodon has not returned value. Jacob DeGrom blew out his arm, and they're paying him like $40 million a year to do it. There are effective ways, I think, to spend money on pitching, and the Cardinals have got to find a way to tap into it a little more effectively, in my opinion. But Rosenthal's point of trade Goldie, trade Arenado says it would free up a lot of payroll flexibility, which is true. But if we've already acknowledged that the Cardinals just under this regime have not been good at allocating those resources effectively in free agency, I don't want to really hear about freeing up payroll that's just not going to get used on on effective impact players. Realistically, those the guys they sign are not going to be as good as Arenado and Goldsmith. So unless you're just getting some super bonafide prospects, which is the same as I felt before the Rosenthal article, when it comes to Paul Goldschmidt, I don't think you trade him. You certainly don't trade Arenado because I just spend some money. DeWitt can have a higher payroll. They need to have a higher payroll. They need to rank more than 15th with the support they get from this market. Ranking 15th is it should not be acceptable. They can boast that they've been historically top 10. That's great. That's history. What is it now? It's not top 10. It's 15th. So get back into the top 10. Their argument would be, well, everybody's spending so frivolously like the Mets and other teams that it, it skews it a little bit. You know, we're, we're still kind of sticking to our model. That's the whole conversation. Is the model being tested? It is. Is it passing the test? It seems to be that it's not. Does that just mean spend willy-nilly and make sure you're in the top 10 in payroll? No, but I think there could be some more effective ways to spend. That's what the front office is, is paid to figure out. It's not my job to do it. It's not your job as a Cardinals fan out there to do it. But a lot of people, I think, are starting to recognize the same things and say, what could they be doing more effectively? I think it pertains to this pitching stuff. Easier said than done to just say, hey, pick the right ones, right? Whether you're spending $80 million or $100 million or $150 million or $5 million or $25 million or $44 million, it, the amount almost is irrelevant. But you got to start picking the right ones at a higher rate. Rosenthal basically said the same thing. He said, look, a lot of front offices have made such blunders. And he goes over the Cardinals' blunders but says, eh, Cardinals aren't the only team to have done that. But the track record does seem to be adding up. It's like, man, their luck or their, maybe luck is the wrong word, their, their track record in free agency with these signings as a team that's just not been really willing to do more than dip their toe in the water of expensive players. $80 million is kind of their, their puke point, seems to be. Contreras, uh, Dexter Fowler, Mike Leake, all in that $80 million range in terms of like the total amount that they've given out to the player. 
Beyond that, you're you're just basically saying, yeah, we're not going to be eligible to get those kind of players, and we'll see whether that haunts us or whether that ends up being a savvy decision. But don't give the Cardinals an out to where they can trade Goldschmidt and the money they owe him, trade Arenado and the money they owe him, and say, well, now they can fill all these holes because they've got payroll flexibility. You'll be going out in free agency and just praying to sign a player as good as Paul Goldschmidt, as good as Nolan Arenado, and you won't be successful with it. You just won't. And it's more than what they do on the field. It's what they do in the clubhouse. It's the presence. You want those guys on your team. I just, I think Ken Rosenthal is as sharp as they come. I don't think that level of a rebuild is something the Cardinals should entertain. A lot of Cardinals fans out there say that's what they should do because they're tired of seeing this team kind of floating in mediocrity, right? In the middle, making the playoffs maybe, but they know that eh, when you get there, it's probably not going to work out. Or this year you're in last place, and so why not? look toward the future and, and be able to have that forward-thinking mindset. That's the way a lot of Cardinals fans feel. I get it. I just don't subscribe to it. I can't. I think it's not black and white. I think going all in on free agency is a nice thought, but we were able to cite a lot of examples of that not working out for the Cardinals. Uh, and, and even if they had gone for some of the bigger contracts, like Stanton, like Price, had they had the opportunity to do those things, it would have bit them in the ass. So it's almost... Not like the get-out-of-jail-free card to say, oh, don't spend money ever. It's just, it's always the same as it ever was. You've got to spend effectively if you're going to spend. And you need to spend because the Cardinals are getting the support and the revenue that dictates that they should do so. And so for me, with where they're at right now, you try to win as many games as you can in the next month, but you're looking to, to gain some leverage and to recognize that you might have some attractive pitchers on expiring deals that you can parlay into couple of trades to help you build for next year. But next year, you need to win. And so you don't trade Arenado. You don't trade Goldschmidt. You do spend in the offseason to fill the holes that you have. And largely, that's going to come in pitching. And you should consider trading position players for pitching. Even if those position players are good, you've got to make some decisions about which ones you keep and which ones you don't have room for in your everyday lineup anyway. Like, these are the questions the Cardinals need to be answering. And it's not easy. But that's where I'm at with this team. I, yes, they need bold action. I agree with the headline from Ken Rosenthal. I don't agree that that means they either spend willy-nilly in free agency or they tear it down to the studs. No, I think it's I think it's more nuanced than that. But I think this was an article that I'm really glad that Ken wrote because he did a great job of kind of laying out exactly what is going on with the Cardinals. I think we just have a little bit uh, of a difference in the way that we perceive the way they should maybe move forward. But I think it's really fascinating stuff. What do you want to see from the Cardinals? Though? Like I said, a lot of Cardinals fans disagree with me, and you guys have been letting me know in the YouTube comments the way you look at it, and I read all these comments. Uh, so I would love to hear more of your take on uh, what do they need? They need a bold trade deadline? I think they do, but it may be in a different way than, uh, than, than others are suggesting. Let me know what you think in the comments section on this YouTube video. Make sure to like this video as well before you get out of here. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, Check us out, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. Click the video and, and find a way to uh, to comment as well. Even if you listened on another platform, the YouTube comments are the place to be. Appreciate you guys, though, as always, for listening. That's the main thing. Uh, but we're going to wrap this episode up here, I believe. Uh, I'll be back at Bush Stadium on Wednesday. Be there Thursday as well. We'll break down a couple of Cardinals games later this week. Uh, ideally, for the team, they're able to, to keep getting some wins as they face the Astros more and uh, maybe climb back into the standings a little bit. We'll see what ends up happening there, but we'll find out as the week unfolds. Make sure you're listening and locked in on B-Shape Daily and uh, the Brendan Schaefer YouTube channel as the rest of the summer unfolds. Thank you guys so much for listening as always, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace!